0: Like when one of the other consultants was leading the training, I thought, well, I've heard this all before. I don't, I'm going to let him present. I'm not going to jump in and interrupt, but you know, be on my laptop. And they'd say, well, it looks like Mark's not very interested. He's not engaged. He's not like, oops. But that, like that could have, or should have been a wake up call to try to get more serious help. But the bad investment, I thought I needed to just care more. And I thought I needed to try harder. Hello,
1: fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives, and that mission has led me to create the Become a Better Investor Community. In the community, you get access to our global asset allocation strategies and stock portfolios, our institutional grade investment research, weekly live sessions, and the risk reduction lessons I've learned from more than 500 guests. Go to myworstinvestmentever.com right now to claim your 50% lifetime discount, exclusive for podcast listeners. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotz from A Stotts Academy, and I'm here with featured guests. Mark Graben. Mark, are you ready to join the mission?
0: I am, and hopefully I'm not your worst guest ever.
1: (laughs) I have a feeling you will not be. And the reason, ladies and gentlemen, you'll hear when I introduce Mark. So Mark Graben is an author, speaker, consultant, and podcaster. His podcasts include lean blog interviews, habitual excellence, and my favorite mistake. He's also affiliated with the technology company KaiNexus and the healthcare advisory firm Value Capture. His books include his most recent titled Measures of Success, React Less, Lead Better, Improve More. He has a BS in industrial engineering from Northwestern University and an MS and an MBA from MIT. His website with all of his books, podcasts, and much more is Markgraben.com. And I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Mark, take a moment and tell us about the unique value that you bring to this wonderful world.
0: That's a, a really, you know, it's a big, heady, important question. I should really think and reflect more about that. I mean, I, I think one piece of, I think one unique thing, I'm, I'm a dot connector, I think. If there's a theme to the work that I do, I've helped people in healthcare connect the dots to practices from improvement and management practices that come from other industries. I help people connect the dots between methods like, you know, from my book, Measures of Success, of literally connecting the dots, I guess, in a chart that shows performance, whether it's a stock or a business measure over time, connecting the dots and learning how to use those charts in a more effective way to make better decisions. And then I like to connect dots between my podcast guests and, and listeners across different fields. So I guess I'll, I'll wear that label. I'm a dot connector.
1: Interesting. And tell us, how did you come up with your idea on, I mean, you've got, first of all, you've got three podcasts, which most of my listeners are thinking, oh my goodness, I'm just trying to figure out to how to start one. And for me, I already know it's hard enough to run one. Tell us why you have three and tell us a little bit about them and kind of what's what's going on with them.
0: Yeah, so I started my first back in 2006. I mean, this was back, I don't know if you were listening to the podcast, you would have to download them to an MP3 player. Like it was a really clunky process, but that one has a clunky name, Lean Blog Interviews. I have a website, leanblog.org. The name was probably a mistake, but it is what it is. You know, I've done more than 450 interviews with people in that field of what we call lean management in different industries. And then these other two were honestly pandemic projects, you know, middle of 2020, not being able to travel, trying to do a number of things that are helpful. So through that firm value capture, I started a podcast called Habitual Excellence, where we interview clients of that firm and and some of the people at that firm and then i started my favorite mistake as a podcast in september of 2020 cuz this idea of learning from mistakes and embracing that and celebrating it and getting better at it including starting with myself you know that that's that's a, a topic i've been fascinated with for years and exploring that in the podcast has been great so i i love podcasting i try to do it in a fairly efficient way so it's not super time consuming but you know they're all either A labor of love or part of my job or labor of love or both, really.
1: And how do people react when you ask them to come on the show for my favorite mistake?
0: You know, the response has actually been a lot better. like I feared maybe a lot of people wouldn't come on a podcast and talk about their mistakes. You know, the first guest, and I think he set the tone perfectly, Kevin Harrington, who was one of the sharks on the U.S. version of the show Shark Tank as an investor and as a, as an entrepreneur and he was willing to come on and be really vulnerable and tell a story about kind of early days you know he he's considered the inventor of the modern infomercial he made a mistake that almost put his company out of business but he he embraced the mistake he didn't blame others he owned it he put some changes in place to make sure that mistake wouldn't happen again and you know I think it's one of the things that set him up for success so having the first guest means you have one guest. I was afraid that maybe quickly it would dwindle down because people want to come on a podcast a lot of times and promote their new book. They want to promote their successes and they want to focus on that. But finding people who are willing to come on and share a favorite mistake story. I think there's this mix of being brave and humble that I've really enjoyed doing those interviews and getting to meet people that way.
1: It's a little bit like with my podcast. I say my podcast is about authenticity. You know, this is a place where we share, you know, our, our worst and I'm the worst podcast host. So don't Mm -hmm. worry about it. It's going to be bad.
0: Well, and and thank you for convincing me. You know, you took a couple swings at saying, well, come on, because I I said, I don't know if I have an investment story. Like, I'm not afraid to talk about failures or mistakes, but I think we figured out some things we can talk about. So thank you for one of
1: my uh, one of my favorite replies. When I ask someone to come on the show, he says, good idea, not my style.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And that happens sometimes, you know, and if someone doesn't want to talk about a mistake, okay, fine, there's plenty of, if you will, generic business podcasts where they could go and Pumped just be up. given an open forum. But a show like yours, a show like mine, you know, it's it's unique. And I think our podcasts are, are kindred spirits. In yep, a, in a
1: yep. So for the listeners and the viewers out there, you know, take a moment and think about it. I know this morning I was jumping in the shower and I was thinking about our conversation we we're going to have tonight. And I was thinking about, you know, what was my well, I guess I didn't think my favorite mistake. I was thinking my worst mistake or my biggest mistake and all that. And those
0: might, be, those might be different.
1: Yeah. But for the listeners out there, think about it. You know, what was your biggest, your favorite, your worst? What was a mistake that you learned from and you grew from? I thought a lot about that and I've come up with mine and maybe someday I'll,
0: I'll come on and, and share that with you. I hope so. But you summarized it really well. What makes it a favorite mistake? Is that it led to something positive? It may have taken time for that to happen, but growth or sometimes a mistake ends up opening a door that wouldn't have been an option. So that's part of the framing. It's a subjective question, but favorite may or may not be the same as biggest.
1: Yep. Yep. Well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to, it, and then tell us your story.
0: Yeah, so the year I think this was early 2000, and you know I I was I was young. I I barely had a retirement account. I was sort of trying to get started with that, and you know I was working in uh, technology at the time. And somebody I worked with, for whatever reason, say, "Oh, I got to tell you about this stock I invested, and oh, it's really it's skyrocketed, and I've made a lot of money." And it was a company called Commerce One. This was back in like the Y2K e-commerce B2B frenzy. I I don't I didn't know I didn't know what the company did. I mean, there was this vague description of it. I certainly didn't do any sort of research. I didn't look at the numbers. I so oh, my friend said the stock's been going up and I I made the mistake of thinking like, well, that means it's going to continue going up. Well, that that's a bad assumption, right? So I think I put something like maybe $4,000 into it. And before long, I think the value had fallen by about 50%, right? So this wasn't money that was going to, you know, bankrupt me or make me homeless. But I think it reinforced that lesson of, you know, being careful about choosing individual stocks and either letting, you know, letting professionals do it through diversified mutual funds or index funds or, you know, I thought, okay, well, lesson learned. I'm not a stock picker. I don't have time to do research. At least I've made the mistake young and with a relatively small amount of money, right? Mm. It could have been worse.
1: Mm. And I think you're going to talk about another story too, about some discovery that you've gotten in your life.
0: Yeah. So this is where, you know, I think you know, this goes in a little bit different direction when you talk about investments. Investing time in things that just don't work. Humans can be stubborn. I was stubborn. And I'll I'll set the context or I'll tell you what I recently learned and kind of go back and and think of what that bad investment in time and effort was. So I'm 48 years old, going on 49 in a couple of months. I was recently formally diagnosed. And I actually, I sought this out, but it was confirmed as, as having ADHD. And that's something that I think I knew, I, oh, I did know really for 20 or 25 years that I was in denial about this, of, of struggles with attentiveness, apparently, especially at work, in meetings and conferences. my This can be a blessing and a curse. My mind will wander. I think I have a very curious, creative mind. But you know there was a time maybe 12 years ago where I did get scolded when I was a consultant and the client kind of complained to the head of the firm that, you know, my quote unquote, multitasking, like when one of the other consultants was leading the training, I thought, well, I've heard this all before. I don't, I'm going to let him present. I'm not going to jump in and interrupt, but, you know, be on my laptop. And they'd say, well, it looks like Mark's not very interested. He's not engaged. He's not, oops. But that, like that could have, or should have been a wake up call to try to get more serious help. But the bad investment, I thought I needed to just care more. And I thought I needed to try harder. And I would sort of blame myself, if not sort of shaming myself for not paying attention. And, you know, there were a number of things that sort of lined up in this past year. Thankfully, there was not a life-altering moment where I haven't lost a job about this. But like the two sides of the coin, this was a a wake-up call, that ADHD is not just about inattentiveness, the same part of the brain that makes it hard to control where your attention goes is the same part of the brain that can make it hard for someone to regulate emotion, right? So if I get upset about something, I have trouble holding that in, sometime to my own detriment. And so there were some moments like that where I did feel like I was starting to damage some relationships work-wise. And I saw an article about this connection and that was really the light bulb moment of realizing okay, you know what, I'm going to stop being in denial about it. I'm going to stop investing time into trying to care more or trying harder. That's just not how my brain works. And so getting that diagnosis, now there's an investment in treatments. There are medications that are incredibly effective. And as I've learned, you know, the final thing about this, I, I think there's a difference between those moments when we choose to not pay attention, Like we all do that, right? If something's boring or not interesting, we can choose to not pay attention. ADHD treatments do not magically make boring things interesting. But here, here's the thing that has made a huge difference to me even in a month is when you want to pay attention to something, the medication and the treatment allows you to maintain that focus. And that's where I felt like I was missing out. I was shortchanging clients. I was shortchanging myself. And those cycles of then feeling bad about struggling to pay attention to something i wanted to pay attention to that made it even harder to pay attention if i'm fixating now on what's wrong with me why why can't i pay attention i think the quote unquote and that's not the right way to say it what's different about me and people who have adhd is that our brains are wired a little differently and if, if we want to address that medications can help without changing who we are or how we think just that ability to focus is something um, i'm grateful for and i regret not doing something about it 10 15 20 years ago
1: so how would you describe the lessons that you've learned from
0: this experience i think it's one of those there's i mean there's an you know i think there's a number of lessons one is not to be in denial about things. I've I've interviewed on, on the My Favorite Mistake podcast, different counselors and therapists. And like, there's this common theme, whether it's ADHD or maybe other mental health questions of, if you even think you might have a problem, you probably have a problem, or at the very least, it's worth talking to a professional to get help, depending on the situation, whether that means counseling or therapy or medication or all of the above. I think there's a lesson in, you know, not shaming yourself for your differences. If you have trouble fitting into a world that's generally created and managed by people without ADHD, you know, it can be hard to feel like you're not fitting in the way you might want to or might need to. And so one reason I've been open about ADHD within the two companies I'm involved in sharing with friends on facebook is that there are, i think there are a lot of people like me who have had these doubts or these questions and like me they've either been in denial they've tried compensating in different ways and so for one it's it's helpful when others speak up and say hey me too like let me share my experiences let me do what i can to be supportive or helpful and then i think being willing to share and disclose things like this helps others maybe decide if they want to take action, right? So I've had a, a guest recently on My Favorite Mistake who was very vulnerable and open and talking about his past battles with depression. And I think him sharing that and being willing to do so creates space for others, even if they don't want to speak up publicly, maybe to to reflect and realize you know, that there is help. And especially if someone has ADHD, there are treatments that are incredibly effective with basically zero risk of side effect. And, you know, I'm not a doctor, I'm not an expert in this, but I guess if somebody listening says, gosh, that might be me, I have some of these struggles. You can talk to a counselor, you can talk to a physician, maybe ideally someone who's more of a specialist in ADHD to make sure you're getting maybe the latest and best advice. Got it.
1: So maybe I'll summarize what I took away. You know, one of the things that you talked about was that, you know, I it's not a matter of trying to care more try harder you know like all of a sudden the pieces of the puzzle you know you started off this whole thing by saying that you're good at connecting the dots and maybe that was a place where you weren't connecting the dots and then all of a sudden they came <laughs> right. together
0: yeah
1: and then yeah you also, yeah,
0: I, yeah go ahead Well, I was gonna say I might not always
1: be the fastest at connecting the dots, but Yeah, well sometimes connecting other people's dots or other situations or external or whatever, but sometimes our internal dots are the hardest ones. You know, you talked about the blame and and shame, you know, factor. And I know no matter what is happening in our lives, we can feel blame, we can feel shame about things that are going on. And you talked then about the idea of talking about it and and then seeking some help and the relief that that provides. So, yes. those are some you know powerful things for for the listeners who are struggling with anything. You know, talk about it. Don't be afraid to talk about it. You know, you sent me you sent me an email kind of mentioning about it a while ago, and I didn't mention. But in 1972, I was diagnosed with ADHD. Oh, and I was seven years old, and I found out. About it from my mom when she gave me this um, booklet she kept where she wrote notes about my health and medical, and I saw that they started to put me on what was a, you know a magical drug at the time called Ritalin, and and I was seven and it probably you know helped me I'm sure in some way but one of the things that happened in my life is by the time I was in high school I was pretty heavily addicted to drugs. Now, whether that came from the Ritalin or not is you know, up for debate, but certainly I faced a lot of struggles trying to overcome that. I went into rehab and eventually got sober, and in September of this year, it will be 40 years that I've been sober. And what that basically means is that I really, I can't treat my ADHD with drugs. It's just too dangerous for my situation. Because as an addict, it's just going to bring me down a road that I don't want to be down. Sure, sure. And so therefore, I've had to kind of deal with it in different ways. And one of the ways that I've dealt with it is I've surrounded myself with what I call steady eddies.
0: Yeah, yeah. And
1: I've got some really great people that are really steady in what they do every single day. And I'm a roller coaster. You know when I'm when I'm flying high and I'm really cranking. You know it's like yeah. I'm unbeatable, but then and
0: well, the, I crash. Yeah, there's, there, there's that hyper focus, right? right? If there if there's something, I mean that ability. It's two sides of the coin, right? The ability to really hyper focus and and get things done if it interests you and your brain at that moment. That's powerful. Now you know it's just to share, and again, not a doctor, not a clinician, not an expert, but there's a lot of information out there, Andrew, about how ADHD and addiction are very highly correlated. That, you know, the part of the brain that the dopamine receptors that don't work as well in the ADHD brain, a lot of people self-medicate, unfortunately. So alcohol abuse rates, drug abuse rates are far higher than the general population Yeah, as a way of compensating.
1: I wouldn't doubt that. And You know, I remember, I'll tell you a story, Mark. When I was, I met a young lady in Thailand that was, and I asked her, what do you do? And we were in a, you know, social setting. And she says, I help kids with ADHD. And she said to me, I said, well, tell me more about that. And I didn't tell her anything about, you know, myself, but I just, and she said, you know, I really feel sorry for these kids because they can't concentrate and they're jumping up and down and, you know, they're all over the place and all that. And, you know, what my reply to her at some point I stopped and I said, well, You know, I was one of those kids, and nowadays when I look at it, I look at it a little bit differently. I think, and particularly after watching the last couple of years of, I would say, a lot of sheep, a lot of people just following blindly. And I would say that, you know, in my perspective, the 100 kids, the 99 kids that are sitting quietly listening to a boring lecture at a young age, they're the ones that aren't normal.
0: <laughs> well, there's differences there, right? Yeah, the,
1: that's, that was what I said. I said I, when I look back at myself now, I think I just love my, my brain and I love my intensity yeah. and I love my roller coaster. And yeah, I could, you know, I could try to do something with it, but I decided that, well, you know, the risk is too high for me to do the medication angle. And therefore, sure. it's really just a matter of, okay, how do I deal with it? And, you know, I'm an up and down guy. When I'm up, I'm really good. When I'm down, you just don't hear from me because I'm tired and I'm in bed and I'm yeah. relaxing and yeah. sleeping. And then I'll be back, boom, with hyper focus yeah. and energy. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, I mean, I, I, I'd suggest also, I mean, I think it took me a while with my career to find a setting that more often than not allows the benefits of the way my brain works to shine. Right. So me going to the same cubicle every day, doing the same work and that 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 is not a fit for me. But doing things that are more entrepreneurial, being a consultant, working with different clients, different learning, different stimulation, different environments is good for me. I've heard, like, for example, uh, a lot of emergency room physicians. Are probably far more ADHD than the general public because there's that adrenaline rush and there's yeah. that constant newness. Now, at some point, you might get really bored of seeing the same type of case coming in over and over, but there's always that possibility of like, oh, okay, something really interesting, unique, you know, is coming in. So, you know, maybe it, people have to find a good fit. And like you said, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, or find people who can do the steady routine, regular things so that your creativity and your gifts are a huge benefit.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Now it's great. It's a great reminder. And I know for everybody out there, you know, ideally, you know, you've got a couple of different things. If something's not working right in your life, take a lesson from Mark and ask questions, try to get help and get support, but also take another lesson. And that is that, you're beautiful as you are, too. Don't feel like, you know, I'm wrong, I'm bad, I'm this, I'm that. Become more of, of yourself. And I would say that that to me is kind of the, the big journey of what life is really about. So let me ask you, what is a resource of yours that you'd recommend for our listeners?
0: Well, around, you know, the podcast, My Favorite Mistake, you can go to myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. In a way, I, I've sort of reflected on this. Like the title, the phrase "my favorite mistake" comes from a Cheryl Crow song from the '90s. Do you know that song, Andrew? My favorite mistake.
1: I don't remember it. And it's about. I remember you know, Cheryl Crow.
0: Yeah, it's about a love mistake. It was one of her hits. So unfortunately, like I, I mean, it's a great phrase. That, you know, there's there's nothing legally preventing me from using it. But if people go and search, let's say Spotify. For just My Favorite Mistake, they're going to find all the different versions of that Cheryl Crow song. So people may need to search My Favorite Mistake podcast in Spotify or Apple or, or wherever. You know, but I, I hope people will check it out because, again, you know, the tone of the podcast is not about shaming people for their mistakes. It's to embrace and celebrate the authenticity, the openness, the willingness to share. And I think that inspires others to, to remember we all make mistakes. We should be ideally learning from our mistakes and finding this balance of not, not beating ourselves up or shaming ourselves for it, but maybe reflecting, taking ownership, and then moving forward, right? We don't want to dwell on mistakes. I think that can then be harmful or counterproductive. But you know, I, I would invite people to check out the podcast. I hope it inspires them and helps them think through their own mistakes, their own professional lives or, or their lives in general
1: and there's an even easier way to find it mark just go to the podcast my dot com show notes and i'm gonna have yeah. that and the links to everything of yours in there so right. last nice. question what's your number one goal for the next 12 months
0: so my number one goal and i've i've started on it and working toward it is that i'm going to be i am writing a book that's based on the lessons from the My Favorite Mistake podcast series, the stories and the reflections from those different guests, and a little bit of my own reflections and experiences. You know, I think first off, on an individual level, helping people think through how do I process and learn from mistakes as an individual? And then I think even more powerful is the lessons from guests who have talked about creating a culture in their company where it's safe for people to talk about mistakes and that they're not blamed or punished or fired, but the organization learns and and gets better. So those are the, I think the two main themes of the book, lessons for individuals, lessons for organizations. I don't know what I'm going to call the book yet. I'm writing without knowing exactly what the title is. That happens, but there'll be some phrase. And I hope that book reaches people, you know, not everyone, people maybe should, you know, not everyone listens to podcasts they should be they should be listening to your podcast andrew but yeah i think the book will reach people in a different way than the podcast how
1: long does. will it take you to write it you think
0: ah that's a good question when i've written books before you know it's usually anywhere from about 6 to 9 months of writing but that's finding time within All the other things that i'm still doing so it's not a full-time job i can't stop the world and say hey maybe you know maybe i should you know take a week off and go to a cabin somewhere and write the book but it percolates you know i think about it i get writing done come back to it you know that's that's what my process has been got it and you know as far as adhd goes sometimes the stereotypical typical thing would be starting projects and not finishing them Thankfully, I've gotten different books across the finish line, but I think it's more what you're alluding to, Andrew, when the hyper-focus is there, when it's a topic that I love, it's not hard to be motivated or to uh, be attentive.
1: Yeah. And when you go to that cabin, why don't you just go relax, enjoy yourself?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I might need to do that for a while before then I feel ready. So maybe it's got to be two weeks, one week to relax, one week to write. Bam. Well,
1: listeners, there you have it, another story of loss to keep you winning. If you haven't yet joined the Become a Better Investor community, just go to MyWorstInvestmentEver.com right now to claim your 50% lifetime discount exclusive for podcast listeners. As we conclude, Mark, I want to thank you again for joining our mission. And on behalf of Stotts Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience?
0: Well, you know, I, I think, as you've asked people to think and reflect, you know I, I I love that you're doing that and and this idea of of being willing to share a story where we didn't have our greatest success, but you know something that was a learning moment for ourselves, you know i think there's there's cases where like people could learn from my mistake, be really careful choosing individual stocks, but I think there's a higher lesson there of embracing. You know the idea of you know transparency and openness to if you've made a mistake at work, hopefully you're in an environment where you can tell your coworkers, "I made a mistake." Let's address it in a constructive way. If people aren't in that environment, then at least maybe internally or with themselves that they can at least admit mistakes to themselves and, and move forward in a better way. So I think we're on the same page of asking or inviting people to reflect and and think to themselves or share. The story with someone close to them, or maybe even on a podcast.
1: Fantastic. Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our wealth. And as Mark has taught us, our health. Fellow risk takers, let's celebrate that today we added one more person to our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.